Southern trees bear strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I examine one of the works of Philip K. Dick in whole or in part. Uh, in Currently, we're going through the sh- short stories of his early career. And in this episode, we'll be looking at The Hanging Stranger. The Hanging Stranger was published in Science Fiction Adventure magazine uh, in December 1953. And this is the last story from 1953 that we'll be looking at. So we've gotten through 1953, and we can start 1954 in the next episode. Uh, You can currently find it in the third volume of the Collected Stories of Philip K. Dick, uh, which is, I think, now published under the cover of Second Variety and other classic stories. Um, Now, one thing to say about this. So about the where, like, the collected stories and how the stories are arranged versus how I'm doing them. Uh, in the collected stories, they're arranged as best as the editors could figure out according to when they were written, right? So if you want a more a picture of when he wrote these stories, you can just read through the collected stories kind of in order. A few have been changed around largely because they wanted to have volumes, each volume to have um, kind of keynote works that that would have been known to readers, especially when movies came out. They tend to do that. So a few got moved around. I think Second Variety is actually one of them that got moved to the third volume, even though it was published quite, you know, written earlier in his career. So they moved a few around just to spread out those kind of foundational, well-known texts for promotional reasons. But still, largely, it's it's they're ordered in the time they're written. I'm ordering them based on when they've been published because... You know, Dick would send a story in, it might get rejected, and he would send it in again, and finally get published or accepted, but maybe not published for a year or something. So, um, for instance, the first his first sale was published, I think, like twelfth of all his stories. Oh, sorry, tenth. It was Rogue. Rogue was his first sale, but it was published quite. Um, you know, it wasn't published until well into 1953. Anyways, um, enough about that. That just explains why sometimes it's, it seems that these stories are scattered around the collected stories when I'm doing this chronological um, approach. Okay, so let's talk about Hanging Stranger. Hanging Stranger, by the way, is one of the stories that is being adapted in the television series Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. Obviously, I haven't seen that yet. Um, I will talk about those episodes when I see it. The first episode is The Hoodmaker, which we won't be looking at for, for several weeks. Um... But when I get to that, I'll talk about that episode. I've already recorded Impossible Planet, which is the second episode. And I think uh, Hanging Stranger is going to be one of the episodes released in early 2018. So I won't see it for a while. So I really can't compare it. I'll just talk about the story here. Plot summary. Um, Ed Lois is our main character. And he's returning to his business, which is a television repair store. So we get one of uh, Dick's favorite professional um, people, the, the, the mechanical electronics repair person. Um, so, but that's where he's going. 
he spent all day fixing the foundation of his house, which, you know, he's not fixing an electronics, he's fixing his house. A good middle-class suburban problem, right? The foundation of your house is slipping or, or needs to be propped up. When he enters town, it's Pikesville, he sees something strange hanging from the lamppost, and on closer inspection he finds that it is a dead body. The imagery we have here obviously is of lynching, and this isn't the first time Dick has played with the imagery of lynching. Uh, the Martians Come in Clouds, published uh, earlier in 1953, has this same kind of imagery of dead things in trees, and they, they actually have a lynching of an alien in that story. They're, they're, they're not really sentient. Well, I guess they are sentient. They're, they have psychic powers, but they, they appear to be just kind of these strange alien blobs, amoebas coming down, uh, landing in the suburbs. And then when they land, they get basically essentially lynched and, and killed. Um, but yeah, they do seem to have some intelligence because they're able to communicate psychically with people. So I urge you to go back and look at that story. And this isn't the, f the also, the, these aren't the only stories dealing with race. You have stories like, um, the, what's that, the one, the Beatles. What's that one called again? Oh yeah, Tony and the Beatles, which is really about race relations especially in the period where the European empires were in collapse and withdrawing um, but this is maybe the most striking image we get from Dick of you know a human body hanging from a lamppost really the symbolism of, of lynching which was still alive and well in the south not as bad as it was you know earlier in the 20th century but still part of the backdrop of, of the struggle for civil rights um, so Lois uh, talks to his employees about the terrific discovery he made. Um, one of the people at his office, uh, Don Ferguson, insists there must be a good reason for it being there. Maybe it's some sort of public service announcement. Maybe it's some sort of joke. It can't really be a dead body there. Another person, Jack Potter, confessed that he saw it before but was confused. Um, Essentially, he's confused that there's anything wrong with seeing a dead body there. It's like, well, why are you bothered by that? What's the big deal? All right. Like, it's just an everyday sort of thing. And as Lois becomes more and more flustered at the indifference of the other people of the town and the people he talks to about the hanging body, a crowd begins to gather. Uh, Lois begins yelling at the crowd to do something about the body. And eventually police arrive to break up the gathering. So he's he's shouting out, like, you know, what's going on here? How can you have a dead body? And the police just kind of say, ah, break it up, break it up. But no one else in the town really thinks there's anything strange about it. Lois is finally brought, you know, into the police station and questioned about the disturbance he caused. And Lois tells the police that he was working underground all day. You know, and he didn't really see what happened. The police tell him that this explains why he's acting so strange. He missed the explanation for the hanging body. And after the questioning, Lois remains very suspicious. The men he talks to are not local police and he that he knew of, and they never gave an explanation for the body. So if there was an explanation, why didn't they just say, oh, it's, it was, you know, it's explained. Instead, all you get is that there was an explanation, but no one can tell him what that explanation really is. Lois ducks away from uh, the public through the hardware store. He tries to get away from an undefined malevolent force that begins to um, threaten him. It's not really well defined what it is. 
and he evades the twin symbols of authority, the police station and the city hall. Beyond city hall, he sees a dark vortex with a dense swarm of things coming out of it. So we start to get this Lovecraftian imagery of these external kind of beasts and monsters. And this is really new in a Dick story. We've never had anything this Lovecraftian before that I recall in any of his, his tales. Uh, these kind of external malevolent beings coming in. You might have malevolent forces, but they tended to be men in suits, you know, bureaucrats, you know, like like Billings in the story, we, the previous story, Project Earth. You know, yeah, there are bad people out there. People are planning us and manipulating our lives. But, you know, this the, the, the Lovecraftian beings coming through some kind of void or portal or vortex is really something pretty new here. At least for Dick. Um, Lois sees that the creatures coming from the dark vortex are these aliens. They have insect-like wings. Again, they, they do kind of almost look like Migos in the way they're described from Lovecraft. He sees some of them going to the city hall. The people of the town just go on their daily lives, not really knowing what's going on. So either he, he's the only one who sees it or the others are just indifferent to their presence. They seem to all have their... Um, Consciousness. The people of the town seem to have their consciousness taken over by invading aliens. And this is kind of a science fiction trope, right? The, the mindless residents of a town marching off to work. You had it certainly in Metropolis in that opening scene. You know, or maybe people looking at screens. Uh, stories like They Live have the same kind of thing where everyone is indifferent to the true evils in, in the world. And maybe... The outsider, the person with the special glasses, can see through that. On a bus, Lois watches the actions of the other passengers. One is observing him very carefully with alert eyes while pretending to read a book. And when the old man, uh, when an old man gets on the bus, he sits across from Lois and passes something um, to him, Loy to another man. And then Lois escapes the bus by using the emergency escape door. The bus passengers begin to follow him, and the man with the book tries to confront him directly, and Lois has to beat him up in order to escape. Lois goes to his house to see his wife, Janet. He tries to explain the situation to her and, ins and insists that they leave town immediately with her and their twin children, Jim and Tommy. A creature in the vague form of Jimmy, though, attacks Lois, and after a struggle, Lois kills it with a kitchen knife. And after this conflict, he notices an alien presence in his mind, beginning to try to take over his mind. He decides to leave town by foot, keeping Janet and his other son, Tommy, behind. Lois uh, was able to kind of crawl out of town. He gets about 10 miles out before he's seen. His clothes is shredded and he's dirty and injured, but he has gotten out of Pikesville. He's gotten out of the town. And he tries to tell the gas station attendant what has happened in the town and he asks to be taken to Oak Grove. There, Lois is questioned by the commissioner who is recording the conversation. This is the second conversation with someone in authority that Lois has. The first was the more informal one with the police, where the police just say, well, there's an explanation. You don't know what's going on. Uh, this is a second one with the, quote unquote, the commissioner, capital C. The commissioner says he believes Lois, believes what Lois is saying, and Lois provides his theory of what's going on. He says, this is what I think is happening. He says, creatures have invaded the town, working first from the highest level of authority, but what's actually being played out in Pikesville is an old conflict of biblical significance. He can't explain why there's a body hanging from the lamppost, but he's seen enough other stuff that he thinks there's basically a, uh, a, a 
massive kind of cosmic conflict going on. The commissioner suggests that maybe it was bait, make Lois and the other people who are not controlled to stand out. So it seems it's not clear if the commissioner at this point, it's not clear if the commissioner is taking him seriously, you know, or just kind of playing devil's advocate or just toying with him or, you know, you know, giving him the benefit of the doubt. But the commissioner says that it'll all make sense soon to him and Lois is taken away by policemen. Now, some point later, a man named Clarence Mason leaves the vault of the Oak Grove Merchants Bank. So apparently he was in the kind of like in that Twilight Zone episode, right? Where that guy Hank waits out the nuclear war in the bank vault or whatever. But you know, he's been there a while, apparently. He comes out of the Merchants Bank. He's shocked to find that he seems to be the only person who notices that there's a body hanging from the telephone pole. And we assume that body is Lois, who was simply killed to shut him up. Right, so maybe what the commissioner says is, is the obvious truth, right? And, you know, that's what's scarier when the, the people in power tell you the truth, honestly and openly, or when they lie to you. Maybe that's a question Dick is uh, playing with here. Okay, so what to say about this story? Um, well, you can read this as a thinly veiled political allegory, of course. It's not hard to see this, um, but... You know, and the allegory works in some ways. One one could be that, you know, just the conformity angle, right? Everyone in the town is brainwashed by the system. A few people resist or see through it, and they are punished or killed off or unpersoned in some way. Um, but we can read through the story again and, and highlight a few key moments and see how this actually works out. Ed Lois leaves for his office and comes across a monstrous crime. When Dick was writing this, lynchings were still common in the United States and were likely presented with the same kind of indifference. In fact, they were community events. Usually, if you've seen pictures of lynchings, you might be shocked to notice that you are not just one or two people. Often, there was the whole community would get together, children, women, men, right, all involved in that lynching. People took photographs of it. They kept souvenirs. They kept those souvenirs in their homes body parts or pieces of clothing or, or most likely photographs of being at the lynching. That's one reason they're so well documented. We have so many images of them. If you search, just search online, you can find hundreds. Now, we don't need lynchings today to notice people responding to crimes the same way that the people of Pikesville responded to the man hanging from the lamppost, right? Notice with me that the man hanging from the post is an outsider. When Lois ends up on another lamppost at the end of the story, it is again as an outsider. When the president orders a drone strike on a family or a bank forecloses on a poor family, only a handful of us respond with the horror of Ed Lois. The rest of us say, oh, this is all just part of the plan. We expect this. What are you talking about? What's the big deal? Yeah, our neighbor just got foreclosed on. Yeah, you know, that homeless guy died last night. Yeah, so-and-so was fired from his job or cut from his medical care or whatever. These are all crimes that are life-threatening. They're, you know, murder of a type anyways, murder through indifference or through institutional indifference. And yet the community, the people around us usually don't care. They just see that as part of their, their lives, the normal course of, you know, events. Totally reasonable within the system that they live in. 
Now, as the people of Pikesville point out that Lois must either be drunk or sick to suggest that there's something strange going on. The public display of the enemies of the state from a historical perspective is not, uh, not uh, abnormal anyways. The heads on spikes kind of thing. It is only modern cultures that did away with kind of the public executions. Right? If you read Michel Foucault's book, Discipline and Punish, you'll probably remember that scene in which this regicide is, is viciously executed at the opening pages. Right? Of course, you also had uh, public hangings in you know in London until quite late and the 18th century was full of them and many of those people were just guilty of property crimes so it's it's seen as part of civilization to kind of hide these things behind prison walls but they still happen and you know people are thrown off the system in a lot less brutal and open ways than murder right the foreclosure, the loss of health insurance, the loss of a job, or whatever. As Lois pretends to accept the hanging body to kind of fit in, he uses the language that's all too common among apologists for state violence. Quote, I thought something had happened, you know, something like the Ku Klux Klan, some kind of violence, communist or fascist taking over. I'm glad to know it's all on the level, end quote. Right? Isn't that the way we excuse it all, right? Someone gets foreclosed on, we might call a lawyer and say, you know, was this just? Was it, was it on the level? Was it done properly? Was it done by the regulations? Were all the forms signed properly? Right. In fact, yeah, once I, I, I was, my contract wasn't renewed once from a teaching job I had at uh, another school. And I talked to the union lawyer about that. I wasn't yet fully part of the my job wasn't really protected there yet because I was, wasn't there long enough. I was kind of year-to-year -year contract at the time. But I did get this, you know, able to talk to the, the lawyer, and that's what it came down to. It was, it was like, well, was everything done properly? Was all the forms filled out? And that's the only thing they could really protect me with. The point is, as long as something, no matter how vile, is quote-unquote on the level, most people will eventually accept it. Now, we're never given any explanation of what's going on that is authoritative, that we can believe. The closest we get to an explanation is that these Lovecraftian horrors have taken over the leadership of the town on some earlier time in one massive occupation, took over the people of the town, and that, you know, probably when Lois was underground, you know, build, fixing his house, or when that other guy was in the bank vault. So they took over everyone all at once. At one point, uh, Lois, while trying to avoid the police station, he notices that flying creatures go into the city hall building, which reinforces kind of a political reading of the story, right? We have the symbol of the evil external creature going into the city hall. A few people that avoided having their consciousness co-opted were exposed through the resistance and bewilderment at the changes taking place. When they point out that this is not how it's supposed to be then they're exposed as the ones who aren't under mental control, right? So in this case, we have a very clear kind of political allegory taking place, right? Most of us are essentially brainwashed, but a few aren't, but they're those who aren't are punished. The controlled people are not perceptibly different from those going through their everyday lives in late capitalism. Quote, here's how Dick describes them in the story. Dull, tired faces... People going home from work, quite ordinary faces, none of them paid any attention to him, 
All sat quietly, slunk down in their seats, jiggling with the motions of the bus. The man sitting next to him unfolded a newspaper. He began to read the sports section, his lips moving. An ordinary man, blue suit, tie, a businessman or a salesman, on his way home to his wife and family. Going home with their minds dead. Controlled, filmed over with the mask of an alien being that has appeared and taken possession of them, their town, and their lives. End quote. It seems that no matter how total the alien invasion is, the economy continues on much as it had. So what's the point of the alien invasion? Nothing changes, really. Except for the, 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 the man hanging from the tree. Life goes on. So you don't really get any idea of why these creatures came in. Why they're doing this. It's simply, it's been done. Maybe it's purely about power. Um, I don't know. And that's part of the mystery of the story. And I think it's part of what makes it it's interesting. Certainly in this age, in an age of conformity, the 1950s when it was written, Right, an age when people were writing books with titles like One Dimensional Man or The Organizational Man. Uh, these, are, these are the kind of books that were coming out in the 50s critiquing the conformist of the, the, the main conformist consumer culture, the culture of the business, the culture of the factory and all these things that seem to take away American individualism. The Hanging Stranger, in this context, is a celebration of resistance against the horrors and banalities of, of such a life. However, on the other hand, we see that victory is not really possible. Right? Resistance is sort of futile in, the, in this example, anyways. Now, Dick's going to change his mind from time to time over his career. He's never going to have full fatalism. This is one of his more fatalistic stories, obviously. There, there really is no way to resist. Uh, resistance leads only to death, even exposing the truth does that but there are other stories in which people effectively resist and change things and i i think that at this point in his career based on the novels he wrote like uh the man who japed or solar lottery or vulcan's hammer even in these earlier stories from the 50s there's a, an idea that somehow change has to come from within the system and that the one of the most effective people who can change things is the the lowly mid-level bureaucrat who can hack the system from within. Now this story induces fear in us not because of the Lovecraftian creatures that have apparently overtaken over, over the world, because again, it doesn't seem that matters that much. They don't really do much. Uh, it's because that they will apparently change very little about how we interact with each other. That might be the most frightening thing, right? That the fact that we're controlled is com something we'd be completely oblivious to because it wouldn't really matter at the end of the day. Of course, we're all at various times in our lives in the situation that that Lois is in, right? It might be in school where we don't agree with what the teacher says, but we realize it's not really worth it opposing what the, the teacher's point of view, right? It's not worth the hassle. It's not worth the detention to do it. So you just shut up and be quiet. Or you're in a workplace and you realize the boss is an idiot and everyone else does too, but everyone just kind of silently nods their head and agrees with whatever nonsense they're saying, right? If you've ever been in a kind of institutional meeting, you might felt such that way, right? Now, there might be true virtues to being a contrarian in the workplace, right? And some workplaces that are a little bit more open to dissent might actually be more effective. And there's articles that suggest this, right? And there's actually danger to being indifferent to horrible things, right? 
the murder of of Kitty Genesee. It it happened in 1964, so it's it's 10 years before after after the story was written. So it's certainly not something Dick was ref, referring to. Now he's he's thinking about lynching. The lynchings, I'm pretty sure, you know, in the end, you know, that people would talk about lynching as just part of the normal daily life. But this murder uh, was the murder of a 28 year old um, like bartender in 1964. And it was a famous story because something like 40 witnesses like saw this murder taking place in New York City. And yeah, they, they called the police and things, but they didn't ever, like they didn't try to stop it, right? They just watched it happen. And then this has been studied by sociologists and looked at and often used as an example of, of how this kind of group think really allows horrible things to happen, how we will turn our eyes away from murder and other crimes just because that's kind of how we're trained to do that it's like that's the police's job to do we compartmentalize our 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 role okay so i think that does it for the hanging stranger it's certainly a very bleak story it's a bleak way to end our survey through dick's career in 1953 um but anyways stay tuned i don't like that phrase actually it's too much of television culture but um Keep listening, and I will very shortly start uploading the stories from 1954. There's a lot of great ones. A lot of his most famous stories are from that year. Um, and actually, many of the stories that will be seen on Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams are from here. We have uh, a sequel to Second Variety, John's World. We have his great statement on posthumanism, The Golden Man. We have other stories looking at race and racial conflict, like James P. Crow. Um, Adjustment Team, which has been adapted into a film. Uh, what else? The Last of the Match Masters about anarchism. Um, the Father Thing about family. So many of Dick's great stories were written in 1954, and I'm really excited to get into that. So thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe. Uh, leave comments on iTunes, or you can subscribe on iTunes or a, any kind of podcast listener uh, app you might have. Or straight on Podbean, you can do that. Um, subscribe through there. But share it with your friends. Um, I hope you're watching Philip K. Dick Electric Dreams. And if you have comments about uh, these those episodes, please leave them on the website. I'll I'll try to say something about these episodes as I as I get as I watch them uh, as I get a hold of them. Anyways, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Pastoral scene of the gallant south, the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth.